Hola, hello, hi, bienvenido, and welcome back or welcome to Mentors Today. And yes, everybody, regular listeners, part of the family here, I would normally be asking Ileana how she's doing. She is still on sabbatical, taking care of some personal things in life there in Guadalajara. So you get a full dose of me and our incredible guest today. Mickey Reynolds. Mickey is the executive director of Grid 110, which is an entrepreneurial support program here in Los Angeles. Mickey is the CEO, co-founder of Grid 110. Grid 110 is an LA-based early stage startup accelerator and community development nonprofit. It's existed since 2014. Mickey has focused in that time on activating the startup ecosystem in Los Angeles through her work there, fostering community and connecting the dots for entrepreneurs across access to mentoring and critical resources. Prior to founding Grid 110, Mickey launched the downtown LA location for the tech education company, General Assembly. She's a critical part of the LA startup ecosystem, or as I now try and call it, the LA entrepreneurial economy. She's accepted commendations and awards, I'm sure, from everybody from Mayor Garcetti to her employers at General Assembly to the plaudits that she receives as being the leader of Grid 110. Um, She's been recognized by the LA Business Journal as a woman of influence, was named to Tech Week's Tech 100, and sits on a number of different advisory councils for both the Mayor's Diversity and Inclusion Initiatives, Pledge LA, and I might mispronounce this, so Mickey, you can tell me the proper pronunciation, WISTEM, WISTEM LA. I'm just going to say now, welcome, Mickey. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Rob. It's so good to be here with you. Did I pronounce that last organization poorly? What, how do we say that? We STEM? We STEM. So it's women in STEM. Yep. All right. Awesome. Women in STEM. And those are, those are just a few of the organizations you're involved in, correct? Like you're involved in like five or six or seven things every day of every week, aren't you? <laughs> I've tried to pare it down in terms of ongoing engagements and involvement, but however I can be helpful to organizations and initiatives. Before we get to more of your human story, let's help our listeners understand Grid 110, right? So, so let's go back to why you and your friends gave birth to it initially, but then let's take it from there and let's really talk about where it's going forward in this kind of hybrid remote world, because I know you and I over the last year or so have talked a lot about that. Yep. So uh, I'm going to take us back to the very beginning, which was early 2014, right around this time, actually. Um, so my personal connection to the organization and to the team, I had been working in LA Tech uh, for about 10 years at that point. Um, I'd worked for the movie studios. I'd worked for a software development company. And at that point, I uh, found myself in a unique position of actually being unemployed. The software development company that I worked for had just shut down at the end of 2013. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I was living in downtown LA. I still live in downtown and was looking to tap into kind of the local community of innovators, entrepreneurs, startups. Like, how was I going to find my next thing? I wanted to find something that was a little bit closer to home for me. And downtown was really undergoing this like resurgence and renaissance of becoming this place where people actually wanted to go, first of all, where you could live, work, and play all within a few square miles. But really struggling to find this sense of community to to tap into. I knew I could go to the West Side, which is kind of traditionally in Los Angeles where the startup ecosystem is centered around is the Santa Monica, Venice, Playa Vista. I think it was formerly known as Silicon Beach. Yeah, man, Um, I was really hoping we were going to get through this whole show without having to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it also speaks to a little bit of the origin story as well as being a place that one geographically undesirable for people that are, you know, downtown is what, uh, 16 miles to the east, but can take you anywhere from 20 minutes to two hours to actually get there. And it was... Uh, just the, you know, the connotation of what Silicon Beach kind of even sounds like this, like baby brother to Silicon Valley, more of like this, like tech bro type of culture. Um, and just didn't feel like one that I really identified with that. Um, but was also trying to find something that was closer to home for me. So started just going out to any event that was happening in the downtown area. Um, I think there were a couple of new like co-working and innovation hubs that were opening up that I was really excited to explore, um, just to try and expand my network in the area and see, you know, what was happening in downtown and how could I plug in? 
And I was really struggling to find that sense of community. So I just, every event that I went to, I just start talking about, you know, I'm looking one for my next opportunity, but also just looking to connect with other people that are excited about tech innovation and startups in downtown and connected to this group of people. Um, one of which, you know, as well, Megan Seti, that uh, were thinking about doing something. They all were entrepreneurs. They lived or worked in downtown LA. They felt similarly that downtown had the potential to be the next you know, startup hub um, and wanted to kind of come together around this like unofficial you know, tech task force to see if there was something that we could do um, to build community, to provide resources, um, and to start something in our own kind of local backyard. Um, and so that's how I was, you know, first connected to the group of folks. It was uh, actually the the originator was Stephen Kane, who's one of our co-founders. He was running for a neighborhood council in downtown LA, and on the plat on the platform of really trying to promote and connect uh, and support the this the growth of a startup ecosystem and platform here. And so during his campaigning, you know, did a couple of events, which is how he connected with Megan. And a couple of our other co-founders at the time, and they were like, there's, you know, maybe there's something here to this. Maybe we should all get together and kind of talk through what are the opportunities, what are the problems to solve. And so I uh, found myself connected to them at that time, you know, at the very initial meeting, I think was like May of 2014. And we met in one of the original co-working spaces here in downtown, um, which is called Indie Desk, and just talked through kind of what were the, the problems to potential problems to solve um, and what were some solutions to those? So that's how it originally came to be in terms of how we got together. And, and the trajectory from there, I, I mean, a couple different angles to look at this. And I mean, you must have just seen such dramatic evolution. I mean, talk about exponential growth, right, from, from then to now. Mm -hmm. So t tell us a little bit about kind of how it evolved in those first couple of years. And then maybe just give us some highlights about just the size and scope that it has grown yeah, absolutely. So lots of evolutions. I think, you know, what we are now is not maybe what we initially set out to do. I don't think we really knew what we were we were going to do. Like we didn't set out to to launch a startup accelerator. Um right. it was really around spending a year, you know, we we met kind of monthly as this unofficial tech task force, um, talking to different stakeholders, talking to entrepreneurs and building owners and different folks that represented various facets of the downtown community of trying to figure out what, you know, why aren't there more startups here? Why are they all centered on the West side? What's missing? Uh, we know that there are entrepreneurs here and what is it that they're missing? What could we provide for them? And we centered around this original problem statement that is definitely a different problem that we're solving today. And it was more geared towards the building owners and why weren't they attracting more tech and creative companies? And, uh, you know, we had somebody who was representing the, the co-working side, understanding, you know, this uh, original kind of independently owned co-working space. I think there were maybe two or three at the time in downtown LA. And for context, back then in 2014, there was one WeWork in all of right. LA right. and that, the original one in Hollywood. Now I think there are 20 in, in Los Angeles alone, I think, you know, during the pandemic or pre-pandemic, there were a lot more. Sure. Um, there might have been like 50 locations, but but back in 2014, you know, co-working was still very like a nascent idea. Um, and I mean, it, apparently that's what the We Crashed uh, documentary yeah. or, or show on, on Showtime yep. has told us. It was or yeah. on their Apple TV, right? Yes. Yeah, it was a absolutely. nascent industry in 2014. Yeah, and it was you know they they were onto something there i think the the original co-working space that we met out of was great if you were a freelancer remote worker like you just needed a desk um and they had a small conference room that you could book but if you're a small team that needs maybe private or shared office space like it wasn't quite conducive to that um and that's what we work had figured out that you know this the, the idea of these flexible spaces um that provided a sense of community and collaboration from a social perspective, but also, you know, low overhead, not having to get into a multi-year lease, not having to, you know, secure more space than you need when you don't know if your company is going to be around in six months or so. And so as we started talking to more building owners, you know, there, uh, there, on one hand, there was this, um, huge vacancies in downtown. So there were about 6 million square feet of empty office space in these high rise towers. And so they saw the growth of the startup ecosystem on the West side and rents becoming increasingly more expensive in Santa Monica. Um, and they were trying to figure out, well, rent is still really relatively affordable here in downtown. We have so much space, you know, like floors and floors of empty space. Why can't we attract more tech and creative companies here? 
And it was because they were thinking about it from this more traditional um, tenant model of, well, you bring in a, a law firm, an accounting firm, they take over you know, an entire floor or two floors. They've got 10-year leases. And startups don't think that way. You know, They're coming from probably their own living room to start a business. And then at the point where they feel like they can invest in that space, they're looking for something that's a little bit more flexible, but maybe they want to be around other founders. I mean, that's why we've seen like the hack houses growing is they, that sense of community, that opportunity for collaboration. Um, the, you know, as you're building your business, especially as a solo founder, it's a lonely experience and you don't want to go that road alone. So you all kind of became like the startup ecosystem translators for this traditional class of business operators, the, the property owners, the landlords, so to speak. Yeah. You were, you were literally building bridges, benefiting both sides, but you were kind of the, the original origin story thought process, the model, so to speak, was like, we're going to help explain this whole market opportunity to these people. Yeah. Uh, and then somehow everybody wins. And then yet we've gone from that to being this like integral, if I say so myself, like organization that is like the backbone of an, almost an entry point for entrepreneurship of all different kinds inside the city of Los Angeles that is the grid 110 that it's become like over the last handful of years. Yep. Yeah. So like I said, it's been very much an evolution. Yeah, <laughs> in that's, terms a journey, of... that's a journey and a half right there. <laughs> talk about talk about the great pivot story, right? Yeah. The original problem that we were that we thought we were solving was for building owners. And we were essentially pitching co- co-working and micro offices. And it, it was obviously a thing that existed already. And I think we were just trying to talk more people into, you know, you've got all of this space. And this is a, a really great way to kind of subdivide it, um, to build community, to uh, to build this like hub for innovation. Um, and so we found our first partner who was as forward thinking as we were, they got it. They actually ended up being the kind of uh, host for the WeWork that moved into downtown. Um, and it was Brookfield. So they are one of the largest building owners and um, leasing partners in downtown LA. I think they own more like 50% of the buildings here in downtown. But they were really thinking innovatively about attracting tech and creative companies. And so they had this floor of spec suites in one of their buildings. It was in the gas company tower. And they had all been like designed to look like what the future of office spaces could look like. So if you were a fashion tech company, if you were a law firm, accounting firm, all of these different suites that were pre-designed. So kind of like if you were walking through model homes, it was like model office spaces. And so they had opened up this uh, entire floor, did some publicity and marketing around it to try and attract more, you know, interesting and innovative companies in there right around the time that we were talking to them. And they were like, look, we've got these spec suites that are sitting here. You know, what if we brokered some sort of partnership where that you could take up one of them and you could incubate companies in there? um, And then if we can just walk prospective tenants through to see like, oh, this is what an innovative hub could look like. And so we found our first partner and we essentially launched our first program the summer of 2015. So we spent that year really trying to figure out what are the problems to solve, centering around this problem of appropriate type of office space for early stage entrepreneurs. So the, the, the proposition to the entrepreneurs was, what if we could give you six months of free office space, mentorship resources, um, you know, where could you be in six months? Imagine, you know, not having to focus your time, energy, and effort on paying overhead costs, but being able to, you know, learn from each other, um, to focus on operational things or uh, areas of growth that you're struggling with. Um, and would you be able to get your own office space in downtown? Would you be able to grow your revenue? Would you be able to hire people and ultimately create jobs in the city? So that was our hypothesis was around like the free office space trade and seeing what would happen as a result of that. The, the, the infamous imagine if, imagine, (laughs) imagine what's possible. And obviously to, I mean, that mark validation occurred product market fit was found. Like obviously people, this resonated with people. Yeah. And I think there were a couple of things that we observed. So we uh, we started very hyper-focused on a particular industry at that point too. So we were, because we were in downtown LA, we wanted to focus on a specific type of company to prove that if this model could work. Um, and the idea was like, if we could do this, you know, this one program in this one building, maybe we'll partner with another building and do a different vertical. So we started with fashion tech companies. Um, and so that looked like e-commerce, wearable technology, you know, uh, software for production and manufacturing um, because of the fashion district here in LA, because of uh, e-commerce being a growing 
thing at the time and still continuing to grow here in Los Angeles, um, production and manufacturing being so big here. You know, what if we could just, and nobody was focusing on that as a vertical. And so we thought we could, you know, build some really key uh, advisory board resources around that of proven and uh, legendary kind of leaders in the space that could provide mentorship and support. Um, and that all of the companies would be in somewhat of a similar space and industry to have that in common. Um, so we started very vertical focused. Um, we worked with five companies for six months, and then we did it again the following year. Um, so for the first two years, this was very much like a grassroots community-led initiative. None of us were getting paid. It was you know, at 10 to 15% of each of our own time to make this happen. And uh, lots of learnings from that. So I think yeah. the, <laughs> the things that we learned was that the office space was a nice to have, but it was the kind of collaboration and community that they got from working together um, and just the, the round table of you know, being able to share the wins as well as the struggles and the challenges that they were facing to be able to even just overhear conversations and be able to chime in with support um, so that working in pro close proximity to each other but also just the, the the focus time to spend on your business and not in your business. Right. And I think that was, you know, they met kind of Monday morning coffee chat style um, and talking through kind of milestones that they were focusing on and any challenges that they were facing. And it was really helpful to lift out of the day-to-day -day operations of your business and talk a little bit more strategically with other founders. And 2015, so we still didn't realize that that community that you all fostered was eventually going to be called community mm -hmm. <laughs> because it was, we hadn't come up with that cool marketing lingo yet. So that was what you fostered the original initial entrepreneurial economic community inside of your physical. Yeah. I think we realized and recognized that that was the biggest value that the companies got out of it. And so, yes, they were able to, you know, grow their revenues, hire people within the space. Like we saw, you know, from the time that they came into the program to the time that they left the program, you know, some companies had doubled the size of their teams. And mind you, like the very first program that we launched, we were working with slightly later stage companies than we currently do now. They, you know, had a product in the marketplace. They had traction. It was like ideally fit for, you know, a team of like one to four. Um, and so it was, I think the, the premise that I even like looked and saw one of our original flyers that we had put together for marketing the program. And it was, we were looking for pre-Series A companies um, wow. that, that were somewhere in the area um, and that could utilize or benefit from this type of support. That's a different, that is a different profile than nowadays, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we just, I think we had to start somewhere. We had to test something out. So the first two years was really piloting things and testing things out. And developing a hypothesis and either proving or disproving it. So, you know, we recognize that the problem with appropriate type of office space was a problem, but it wasn't our problem to solve. Right. And I think we saw with the rise of WeWorks and all of the other co-working spaces, somebody else is much better suited for this. Like we're not suited to necessarily focus our time, energy, and resources on operating a space, but we want to really work closely with the founders. Yeah. And so um, at the start, at like end of year two, start of year three we came into our first original source of funding from the city. So we had always had a partnership with the mayor's office since we launched. And at that point, you know, having two cohorts, 10 companies with outcomes, you know, they had been able to get office space in the downtown area. They had created jobs. They had grown significantly. So we went back to the mayor's office and said, like, hey, we have some outcomes. Do you know any appropriate, like, funding uh, sources that would make sense for this? Um, and so they helped us uh, put together a grant proposal for some city funding. And we've been funded, you know, through this grant ever since. And so at that point, it really allowed us to operationalize, you know, we didn't have any actual paid staff members. So we were able to actually hire our first few team members, myself included. So I stepped down from the board of directors. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I left General Assembly. I'd been there for three years, you know, and I felt like really proud of what I had accomplished during my time there of launching the, the downtown campus and was ready to move on to something new. And this opportunity presented itself and had never thought about it before, even though I put together the budget for right. the grant and, and the proposal. Like, you didn't realize you were putting together your own future budget. No, I did not. <laughs> it, 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 and it never really dawned on me because I think my entire career before that, I have always been like somebody else's right hand. And I was really ah, okay really good at it. Um, I 
jokingly at one point, my title was the VP of get shit done. And so, <laughs> By the way, everybody needs one of those people. <laughs> absolutely. You, um, you need one of those people now. <laughs> very likely, right? Yes, absolutely. And so I think I'd always been, you know, the, the more logical operations, like realist of, okay, you have this wild, crazy vision. I'm going to help you figure out how we can actually make this happen or what we can actually make happen. And I wasn't looking for a CEO type role or this, like the, you're the, the person to make sure. all these strategic decisions. And I think it was just timing. It was, we, we got the funding, we were looking for someone and the board, everybody else was running their own companies. And so, you know, they were like, would you, you're looking for something new. Would you want to do this? Yeah. And it, I think that just the timing of it just really worked out where I was excited because I had been part of, you know, building it from the ground up and had always played really much a behind the scenes type of role um, up until that point and was, had some thoughts around what we could do with it and was really excited to actually be able to invest the time and resources into seeing, you know, where we could take it from there. I almost wonder if it, if, it presented itself in the way that was like acceptable to you in your brain in the moment, right? Because it was so collab, because it was so collaborative. Yep, for right? sure. So if, if it had, if it had been like a job posting or a hey, you should go check out the CEO gig, like you, it might not have resonated with with you the way that it did, largely because of the trust and rapport and camaraderie that you had already built up with the other people on the board building this thing. Yep. Yeah. And to be honest, like I might've even talked myself out of it if like I had seen it as a job opportunity. Like I'm not, I don't want that responsibility or like, I don't have the experience like running a startup accelerator. You literally would have just kept telling yourself I'm somebody's VP of get you done. Yes. Yes. uh, Right. And if I'm the CEO, then how do we get you done? Right. Yep. Yeah. And so that for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very calculated risk taker and I, that was a leap for me. That was in, in yeah. my mind, that was a huge leap for me um, of leaving what was at that point, my dream job of working with General Assembly and the opportunity that I had there for something that there were a lot of unknowns around. And uh, you, you, know. you jumped full into startup world, literally <laughs> yeah. like startup, startup for startups, but you jumped yeah. full into startup world. And let me just say on behalf of the entire city and entrepreneurial economy of Los Angeles and if I remember correctly, I think you call all your community members gritties, uh, mm-hmm. maybe, or something. Like, let me just say, we're glad that you did throw yourself into this because <laughs> you, you've made an indelible impact that although the mayor's office and the city has been a financial partner of yours for years, I don't know that they fully appreciate the work that, that you all have done to essentially instigate and catalyze an entire part of the city into something from not nothing, but from something very different. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that so much. Awesome. So let's do like, we just referred to like your community members, right? The founders, just give us a snapshot and some stats, just some data points. Like how many founders have we started? How many startups have we supported? How, how much revenue have they grown? Like what kind of an impact have we had over this last eight now, yeah, eight-ish years? Yeah, it's wild to think back. So at that point, when I came on board full time, we had worked with 10 companies. So we had, you know, run one program a year. Um, We worked uh, with five companies, each cohort. So, you know, they had had some outcomes at that point. And with the funding that we got through the city, it was like, okay, how can we actually increase our impact? You know, if we're going to be hiring people, we should be running more programs, we should be working with more founders. Um, maybe we should see what else outside of fashion tech we can be doing. And so uh, we made a couple of key changes. We um, opened up our programs to be vertical agnostic. So we wanted to see, you know, any business vertical can apply. Let's just see what else is out there and who we can be supporting. And then the second thing that we did was, um, remember, I mentioned that our our kind of company focus was like pre-series A companies. Um, and so something that we saw just from looking at our applications was a large number of applicants were like pre-launch and maybe even in the idea stage. And there weren't a lot of companies that were in the like sweet spot that we were looking for. And we've, I felt like there was an opportunity, you know, in seeing what YC was doing with their startup school was to provide some sort of education for entrepreneurs that are at the idea stage. Like how do you take an idea and actually validate that there is a viable business opportunity here unless you are studying entrepreneurship, unless you go get your MBA, both of those slightly costly um, in order to, to, to start and launch a business. Um, but how do people who have are wildly creative and have innovative ideas and, and want to tackle problems, how do they get kind of 
from back of a napkin into actually executing something. So we created this uh, six-week program um, that we called Idea to Prototype, and it was geared towards founders or people that were thinking about becoming a founder, had an idea for something, um, maybe still working their full-time job, but like can't get this idea out of their head. And it was more of like a classroom-based curriculum-focused program um, over a short period of time that really focused on the foundational elements of uh, of building a business. So identifying your problem, what's the solution, your value proposition, um, customer discovery and validation, like all of these kind of key fundamental things that you really need to understand in order to, before you even spend a dollar building something, like you want to kind of like figure all these things out. And so we launched that program in tandem with our kind of later, still early stage, but later stage program that we called residency. That was for companies that were established, like existing companies. You had launched something, you had a product in the marketplace. um, And we ran those programs kind of concurrently at the same time together um, at the fall of 2017. And it was really just off to the races from there and iterating on each program. So, you know, we just finished up, I believe, our 22nd cohort. um, And we've worked with 235 companies over the past seven years or so. Uh, where 70% are led by women and 74% are founders of color. Um, They range in terms of, you know, industry um, from scalable tech ventures that are building SaaS or enterprise or consumer products um, to CPG, e-commerce, as well as a mix of more like traditional small businesses. So brick and mortar, we've worked with a couple of nonprofits. So the focus has really been more on entrepreneurship and the different faces and shapes that that takes um, in our uh, in our community, um, and really being able to provide support for all the different types of businesses that exist, um, regardless of how big or seemingly small it may seem. And and that, it, I mean, you just articulated it pretty well. It seems like you could hear that story and you could be like, well, it just kind of happened. Like it evolved that way. And we, you know, made a couple of tweaks in the curriculum and then boom, but it really was pretty intentional. Uh, I mean, and, 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 in this world that we play in, we live in, right, of, of the entrepreneurial economies, there's so much overweight energy put to the venture backable, you know, future unicorn. And, and, and I get it, like from a model standpoint, right, the kind of hierarchy of the, of the ecosystems is like progressively dependent upon that one company, like navigating it's all the way through. And then everybody at each stage, like, uh, see, that company came from our program, right? Oh, then our company, like our group got them ready for that stage. And then, oh, they, <laughs> right. It just keeps going up. But, but you very intentionally, I mean, the, the mix of people you have is so diverse. And then here's what's fascinating to me is you mix them all together. If, mm-hmm. if I'm understanding it correctly, right? So the, the people doing the, as we would call it, traditional localized small business are right there alongside their sisters who are building you mm-hmm. know, a software company that could sell globally. Yeah. And that's very, those are very intentional decisions that we've made. And, and the questions have come up of, you know, should we uh, s- split the cohort? Should we run different tracks for companies? Um, should we separate them in some way? And even feedback that we've gotten from founders themselves with, you know, maybe this particular session doesn't really apply to me so much. Um, and so we've tried to, one, just level the playing field for everybody because we want to make our program feel as accessible as possible, regardless of the type of business that you're building. Like they're just fundamental things. Every business needs to make sure that they are, you know, they, they, they learn, they talk, they work through. Um, and that is the same whether you're building a corner store or yeah, a you yeah. billion dollar company. My, my, dad used, my dad used to say it, 80% of it is the same. And then there's that 20% that's unique. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think we've tried to accommodate for that so that where the majority of our content sessions and programs really are relevant for anybody. And then to provide kind of key sessions, um, splitting the group if needed, maybe and even down to the point of like being B2B focused versus direct to consumer focused, like if it's around marketing or sales things. So we try to be really mindful about that. But yeah, absolutely. I think the the different things, the the learning opportunities that the founders can have in being in a diverse cohort as that, where it's not necessarily just the entrepreneurs themselves and you know the demographics and their backgrounds, um, but the experiences that they bring to the table, the types of companies that they're working on. Um, you know, every entrepreneur that we've worked with has a background in something before they you know, started the business that they're doing that can be relevant or helpful or beneficial to another founder. And so whether that's having a deep expertise in social media marketing 
and being able to talk through that with another founder. Um, I think we talk a lot about, um, we bring in, you know, uh, advisors, um, guest speakers, different partners into the program. But oftentimes I think the, maybe the more valuable lessons are learned from each other. So the peer mentorship aspect is huge in our program. Um, and so we feel like it's really important to, to be able to have a diverse mix of different industries um, because they're all valid companies and they can all, you know, uh, provide opportunities to create jobs in the city to, to, to give back into their own communities in different ways. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, in some ways, you're walking the walk of talking diversity, right? Which you are attacking on a number of demographic levels, but then by being so intentional about how you build your cohorts and your community, I mean, you're very intentionally diversifying the points of view that these people, predominantly women, as you say, women of color, are uh, exposed to. Right, which is that's I, that's awesome to hear, and it's also great to hear that I'm sure, like you said, there are snippets of feedback here and there. It's like, well, I, that one session might not have been I, like kind of a waste of my time, but the general feedback is this positive reinforcement of this idea that like I'm growing as a result of being next to these people, these women. Yeah, I'm learning lessons from them because they looked at this problem from a totally different point of view. Yeah, and and we continue. I mean, feedback is a really big thing for us, and we also kind of stress that to the entrepreneurs. You know, feedback is a gift. I think somebody said, um, and to always be welcoming that in. So, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, um, getting feedback on the business that you're building. So, not to be so insular and kind of you know get out of the building, um, so to speak, and start talking to people about it and yeah. you know getting their thoughts on it. Um, but also being open and coachable to feedback when you're in programs like these, because you obviously, you know, come from the perspective, like you don't, you don't know what you don't know, and you're being exposed to all types of different things. And some things will be applicable to your business at that point, maybe it'll be applicable later on. Um, but we take that same approach with our own programs. And so feedback is really important to us. We read over every single piece of feedback and we do weekly feedback surveys as well as, you know, beginning and end of program and we're constantly iterating our product. Um, so no two cohorts look exactly the same. Um, we've evolved our programming over the years of what like the, the market needs are um, or what yeah. makes sense. And always just trying to, I, I think, make it still continue to be relevant to what the needs founders have today. And so, I mean, you're, you're in the business of preparing such a huge uh, number of, of entrepreneurs to again, not all venture-backable, but a large percentage of them, um, to go down this venture-fundable path. And yet, you know, we, we live in a world where the statistics tell us, right, that like 2%-ish of venture funding is going to under to women founders. You know, like I, I think the actual stat that I referenced in the question is like a half a percent, but I think the number is like 0.3 something that I read yesterday, um, right, that are going to women of color um, founders. And I mean, I, I, I live in this constant question where I, I'm caught between the, you know, collaborate to tear the system down and, and, you know, beg for a new table or a seat at the table that already exists. And then I just think of the incrementalism of that. And I'm like, wait a minute, maybe it's just better just to build an entirely other system over here. Right. I mean, it's this I, I'm constantly caught in between that in all my conversations, in all my interviews for podcasts. Right. It's the. So, you know, could we expend an immense amount of energy as a collective group of we, in this case, that wants the, uh, the venture capital system to work more equitably and more diversely um, and move it from 2% to 4% to 5%, which of course would change innumerable lives, but it would still only be 5%, right? Or is there a path that says, like, maybe we just all need to collaborate differently and better to build like this alternative and like come over here. Right. That's OK for those people over there, but come over here. Um, and I would be I just I mean, your your program exists at the intersection of that. And so I would love your your thoughts on that and just the whole what it must be like to to live in that space where you're preparing young founders to, to face that challenge. Yeah, I I kind of feel like it's a both and situation yeah. where okay. I think in in the short term, we're going to do what we can do, you know, with the cohorts and the entrepreneurs that we're working with and supporting to try and make that, you know, it may seem small, incremental in the grand scheme of things. But the results that I think that we've been able to show um, are like, how do we help these founders navigate these spaces that 
were not designed for or meant for them. Um, <clears throat> and unfortunately, it's like learning how to play the game, you know, the the venture capital game and understanding how it's played and what the rules are. Um, and I hate that there are rules and that it's a game, but there that's how I think you can be successful at it. And we've it seen is, people it be is, successful. right? I mean, yeah. it is a game. I, I actually had a conversation with one of your founders, one of your community members like a week ago. And it was just that. It was like separate some of your emotional frustration from the fact that you're angry at a like that you've been like playing a game that maybe you weren't hundred percent sure it was a game or you weren't hundred percent sure clear on the rules. Mm-hmm. And and then instead say like, okay, if I'm gonna go play the just like if I'm gonna go, you know, show up on a soccer field, I'm not gonna try and play basketball rules. Right. right? Like I right. like I mean it's it's it, and so it kind of maybe dehumanizes, depersonalizes it in a way that says like, hey, like it's a game. There are rules, right? And if you're gonna be in it, then you have to you have to surround yourself with the type of people like you guys that that are gonna help them understand the rules so that they can play with some at least competitiveness, so to speak. Right. And, and along with those, you know, the rules is like understanding how do you win? How do you be successful in this space? And I think part of that is understanding how venture capital actually works, who it is meant for in terms of the types of businesses, like what they are trying to achieve in their investment strategies. Um, and I think that we have some really honest conversations with entrepreneurs in our programs. Um, and Austin Clements actually does an incredible session on demystifying venture capital. And it's really how can you as a founder understand what like how VC is structured, how they make money, you know, <clears throat> who they're beholden to, that they're not just, you know, handing out cash willy-nilly. It's that they're they're trying to be strategic about managing somebody else's money and getting a return on that money and how big that return needs to be. And so that then informs the decision making process for the types of companies that they're looking for. Um, but there's also, you know, systemic and structural issues that layer right. on top of that, where it's not a level playing field that, you know, if they were just looking for the best opportunities, which have been proven by research to be led by women and diverse teams, then we should be seeing a very different outcome. So we do what we can in these programs to help entrepreneurs navigate and just make the right decisions for them. But on the flip side of that, um, because venture capital is meant for was like 0.5% of all businesses, yeah, really. Natalie Molina would tell us all the time, right, in her social postings and her writings, and it's a tiny, 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 tiny mm-hmm. from a decimal part of the economy. Yep. It gets but, an extraordinary so, amount of attention. Yeah. So there's a huge white space that's open for you know new, innovative, different potential funding models to support the the rest of the businesses that are either deemed not appropriate for venture, can't get it, et cetera, what have you. And I think for the longest time that was, you know, uh, the traditional like lending system, like banks, um, and trying to get a small business loan, but you have to be in here, you know, business for X number of years, have revenue, profitability, whatever it might be. And that just doesn't make sense for startups. So I think over the past several years that we've seen, you know, an emergence of um, different players in this space that whether it's from like a revenue financing based model where you can show that you're, you have, you know, X percent of, of revenue each month um, through your e-commerce store. And so it's predictable um, or your SaaS product or whatever it might be. So there are some innovative opportunities that are available for you. Um, but then there are also people that are thinking in different ways around, you know, venture capital and like, are there similar types of models to that, but maybe don't focus on this growth at all costs must, you know, be a billion dollar company, but still be able to invest in innovation. Um, and I know, you, you know, Will at Chiso's Capital, um, who is thinking about that in a unique way. Um, and yeah. like, and whether it proves right or wrong long-term, we'll mm-hmm. see, but like the fact that he's even applying his and his team's intelligence to trying to think about it is fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I was really sad to see NDVC, which started as an experiment and very similarly, um, kind of, uh, decide to, to not be making those investments anymore, but it, it really got people thinking about what are different ways, um, that, and different models, um, and different types of term sheets that should exist to support the growth of innovation and maybe make it more founder friendly and not support this, you know, insane growth trajectory, but make it more sustainable. Um, and so I'm excited to see more things like that happening in this space. Um, I think that there's also a lot of talk and conversation around who is actually funding these funds. So that on the LP side, the limited partner side, 
and a lot of the institutional investors, whether they are pension funds or university endowments or even corporations, they hold a lot of the decision-making power in who ultimately gets funded by who they are funding um, as a fund. And so I think that there is some disruption that needs to happen there um, of enabling more diverse fund managers, um, but also wanting to invest in these you know, innovative, different solutions that are not just the same thing and done the same way that we've been doing them for years now, but who is actually pushing uh, the boundaries on what's possible. Yeah, it's really, it is truly, and like most of life is, right? It's the truth is in the gray in the middle, right? So it is a both answer, as you said, very articulately. Yeah. It's a, it's a it, the, the fact that you're notably, as you say, having real honest conversations to help founders to understand how to navigate the current world. Um, while also actively participating and, and, and collaborating to try and create the better new version of the future world. That's, that's the reality, right? That's the life we live in. That's, so tell me this, my friend. Um, you are, like me, not originally from here. Yet we're both, as we say here in Los Angeles, hashtag long LA, which for those that haven't already picked up on me saying that all the time on the show, um, just a quick reminder, it's equivalent to saying like you shorted a stock or you long a stock. Like you, you're making a long-term bet. You believe in the long-term potential. I've noticed recently um, in your travels, a little bit of post-pandemic traveling now going on, right? That you've, you've been out there talking to other people like yourself, uh, ecosystem builders, entrepreneurial economy, mm-hmm. influencers, and leaders. Come back home here for a minute with me and tell me, like, are you still bullish long LA? And if so, why? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's been an interesting kind of dialogue in my head because I think I was so focused on building like hyper local in downtown and then kind of more spread out across the Los Angeles region. Um, and have always been really excited about the, what's, already happening here in Los Angeles, the potential for it, how I don't feel like we need to compare ourselves to Silicon Valley. Yeah. That's why I, I, I was just going to say, I should have phrased the question with one amendation, which would be, <laughs> I'm not talking like zero sum game, like, well, no, Rob, actually Tulsa is a thousand percent better than LA. Because you know, I don't think like that. So I'm, but, but you've now been exposed to a lot more. And so that's why I, I kind of twist the question, right? I know you believe in it, but are you, are you as bullish on the potential that we have here in the entrepreneurial economy and, as maybe you have been or not, right? And then maybe the reasons behind why, yes or no. Yeah, I think the the exposure to the different ecosystems and community builders um, just reminds me that they all need to exist. Um, and that, you know, one is not better than the other. I see a lot of people talking about Miami and, you know, it's like the the fight kind of like, well, who's better, New York or San, San Francisco really, or Miami? No. I, was, I was really hoping Silicon Beach and no Miami reference in this podcast. <laughs> you, you killed both of those hopes of mine. So. <laughs> and, and, I, and I use that as an example because you're right. It isn't a zero sum game. Like I think all of these different innovation ecosystems need to exist. Because people don't need to move, you know, innovation is happening everywhere. And so there needs to be just like we were trying to support innovators in our own backyard in downtown LA, like these, these, these concepts are, are not new, they need to exist, like somebody has to be building them to support the next generation of companies. So yes, I'm incredibly excited about what's happening in, in LA and excited to see, you know, when people were, you know, kind of done with San Francisco and wanted to move to LA, they wanted, you know, better work-life balance or, you know, all of the great things that we get to, to benefit from. We've got an incredibly collaborative community that is just, you know, supportive and, and down and um, it makes it feel smaller, you know, that and, and more intimate than I think most people would maybe recognize. I think a lot of people uh, give LA a bad rap and because they know only certain aspects of it or they haven't really tapped into it in the way that, you know, you and I have been able to do. Um, I said to somebody, I would love love your opinion on this. I said to someone, uh, well, I actually said twice. So I said it to Diamond Hawkins, young founder from New York, who was out here visiting us and is about to to make her company bi-coastal and plant some roots here. And then I said it to Paul Griffiths, an investor who we all know from Twitter, um, as as in both cases, we hiked Griffith Park on their visits to to, (laughs) uh, LA. And I said, as a Chicago guy, a neighborhood guy, um, coming from a neighborhood city that is known to be a neighborhood city. That's how everybody understands Chicago. 
I said that LA is actually misunderstood because it's really just a neighborhood city. Um, but, but for some reason or another, the way that the world, including probably all of us when we first landed here, like try and consume LA, we try and consume it as if it's like one massively like monolithic thing. And it's not, I'm like, so like there, I think there are probably, I described it like eight to 10, maybe 11, like sub neighborhoods in the entirety of the city. And then I'll take it a step further. I think I've learned now from watching you, watching others, talking to others, listening, 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 traversing around a little bit that we could during the pandemic now. Um, like, I think it's like four or five, maybe even six, like little sub entrepreneurial ecosystems. Um, wrapped up inside the whole. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, it's, yeah. We're basically just a big neighborhood city and everybody's been trying to consume it all at once. Absolutely. I mean, that was really the impetus for even starting Grid 110 was the sheer size and geography of LA has given rise to these pocket communities that have risen up. So, I mean, Pasadena has been a player for the longest time with what right? Innovate Pasadena exactly. is doing. Um, you know, Glendale has become an emerging player. Um, Hollywood, Culver City, where is now like the home for so many major tech companies Dave, there. Dave, Dave Whalen would tell us it's literally the intersection where life sciences meets entertainment, content, yeah. and tech, right? <laughs> yep. And so I think that's the the beauty of, of LA is one, tech is not the dominant industry here. It's definitely growing. But I think that that then, you know, the being able to have those diverse industries and especially around creative industries and the, emer- the, the intersection of that in tech I think is really exciting um, and the opportunity that that creates, especially around whether it's content um, and uh, the creativity aspect of it. So I, I think it's just, it's such a cool time um, to be here, to be building. Um, and I'm excited to see how kind of LA, you know, reemerges post pandemic. Yeah, me as well. And I, I often have to tell people sometimes to correct them. Like my long LA belief system is rooted in like the people that are here. And trying to yeah. connect, trying to connect and provide for and engage and, and uh, catalyze the people that are here. And if other people want to come here because this is their place and it it's their vibe and it makes them happy, like God bless them, come on. But if you don't want to come here, like if you want to go to any of the other fifty top cities in the country and build your business and your family and your roots and your like contribute to those communities, then please go do that. Right? Like that's 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 the whole vibrancy that we should all aspire to. Um, all right. So I have one crazy wild card. I always try and throw like one wild card question. What is one thing that you've not done in your life these last 10 years that you intend to do, not try to do, but you know, you're going to do this in the next 10 years. Yeah. So you had kind of alluded to this and, you know, I guess I've done it in the past month or so, but I definitely want to make it more of a priority is, you know, on the professional side, just visiting more of these emerging startup ecosystems and getting that perspective and one just from a community building, but also an educational, like how are people doing it in St. Louis or in Atlanta or in Detroit um, and wanting to learn from, you know, the boots on the ground folks that are there. Um, are there ways for us to collaborate now that we have a national program? Um, are there things that we can do from a community perspective together? Are there and just like understanding how other ecosystems are being built and 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 what's emerging there, and just you know m- building those relationships and bridges, um, and you know not necessarily putting SF, New York, Miami high on my list, but right, you know so, right. again some of these really exciting emerging cities where I think that there is a lot of exciting stuff happening. You know, my most recent trip was to Durham, North Carolina, and it was a part of this program. Um, that was specifically for entrepreneur support organizations like ours. So other nonprofits and maybe a couple for-profit organizations that that provided programs or resources for entrepreneurs and bringing us together. So it was like an accelerator for accelerators. And they chose our in-person convening to be in in the home or the the home for one of our other participants. So he has a co-working space in, in Durham, North Carolina. Um, that is black centric. So it's, it focuses on black entrepreneurs, but not exclusive to. And it was really cool just to learn more about from his perspective and to learn about the different businesses and the industries and the emerging ecosystem that's happening there of a place that I may not have considered before. Right. Um, but I think there are lots of key learnings that can happen. So that's yeah, something that I for, want. On the professional side for 10 years, you've been so laser focused here. 
Yes. Yeah. And so that's something that I definitely want to prioritize just so that I can, you know, keep learning more about what's happening in other parts of the city. And like, if I can find ways to bring our team, you know, there as like a, uh, an, a learning opportunity, um, a community building opportunity. So on the professional side, that's something that I definitely want to do more of. And then on the personal side, um, I don't really have hobbies. I was talking about this with a friend that, you know, she was like, what do, what do you do outside of work? And I'm like, work. (laughs) I was was like, you and I have a very similar (laughs) social life. Even, even the things that I do for fun somehow maybe center or with people that I know because of work or it's volunteering to judge a pitch competition or something like that. And I'm like, I need to find something that maybe taps into a different part of my brain. And, um, I actually took this from uh, a friend that you know as well, uh, as an a, um, the founder of Skin Muse, where she calls herself a hobby hopper. And oh. she was learning, learning how to play golf for a little bit. She and was. Then, yes, she yeah. was. And she said it, and I love this framing of it. it was like, I she love that. D- she doesn't need to be good at it. Like, she just needs to have fun doing it. She's like, I'm an expert at that things and, you know, in other things in my life, I don't right. need to be an expert at the things that I have fun with and enjoy. Oh, isn't so, she, dropping diamonds <laughs> on the show today. She's not even on the show and she's dropping diamonds. I know. Diamonds. So she and I actually met up for tea a couple of weeks ago um, and learned how to play chess. And oh, it, awesome. <laughs> it was such a fun way of just like one, being able to catch up with her. Um, and she's, she's a founder that went through a program during the pandemic and have only been able to see a couple of times in person. So it was nice to have that kind of focus quality time to catch up with her, but then also to tap into this other side of our brains, um, and to learn this very strategic game, uh, in the middle of this like tea house in, right. um, I where are we? We're in, uh, awesome. like North Hollywood area. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's maybe exploring some different hobbies that, you know, just take up a, a small portion of time that can be a break and reprieve from the day-to-day of what I'm doing um, and something that I don't have to be good at. <laughs> no, I love that. That's a, like, There's a lesson here. That's going to be it. The hobby hopper concept is like, whoa, mind-blowing. Because, mm-hmm. right, because we do and we predispose to that. Like if we're going to do something because we strive to be excellent at what we do in our professional lives, then that tendency is to predispose ourselves to trying to have to be excellent at that and everything else we do. And the truth is, no, just do some stuff because it brings you joy. It's totally counter to who I am as a like type A, like recovering yeah. type A as a Virgo who like is a perfectionist who feels like I need to be really good at something. So I think it's, it's uh, reframing that in my mind of you don't have to be good at everything if you you can just enjoy it and it can just be that for what it is. And I'll say this, and I'm not being presumptuous here. This is like one of the chances I get to like you know be a little bit on the old guy. So let me sprinkle a little wisdom on this. It'll make you a better CEO. Mm-hmm. Like it really will. I mean, all the evidence tells us that. All the data tells us that. Every anecdotal experience. I've, I'm I'm infinitely better equipped as a professional today at 53, almost 54, than I ever was at any point prior to this. Even when I was thought I was far more skilled or far more focused or far whatever. Like it just, it will make you just that, that, that well-roundedness that comes with it, the added perspective, the joy, the exposure to other people and and other ideas. Like, and then when you couple that, here we go. I just, I'm going to, now I'm going to turn this back into your professional thing. Like, so I can't even avoid this. Right. So then when you couple that with the focus on these other geographies and like getting yourself out there and learning more about that, Like those two things are going to become your superpower in the next decade. Always be learning. (laughs) Always be learning, right? It's okay. So segue into your actionable advice there, uh, mentor for the day. So what are, give us three things. Maybe always be learning is one of them, right? Give us three things that our audience can take away from this and say like, okay, these are three actionable bits of advice. Three bits of advice from Mickey Reynolds today. So the biggest learning, I think, for us in, in building and evolving Grid 110 and even you know what we talk about a lot with our founders is to really focus on the problem that you're trying to solve um, and, and to go so far as to be problem obsessed uh, and to understand who has this problem, how acute is the problem, wh- how much would they pay to solve this problem. Um, and I think if you get really fixated on what that problem is, you know, I see a lot of entrepreneurs that tend to be more solutions oriented. So like, I want to build an app that does this. 
but do you understand why that app needs to exist and and who it's solving the problem for? And so I think the the the, the solution can tend to change. Like our solution changed over time. Um, and it was also because we weren't solving the right problem for us. We were solving a problem, but not the problem that we really cared about. And so once we kind of iterated around that and have remained to keep problem focused um, and have iterated and evolved our solution since then, I think it's that will be your North Star. It will be your why. It will keep you grounded and focused on kind of your purpose for what you're doing. Um, the second thing I would say is to get outside of the building. And so I know that's probably a little hard given the <laughs> pandemic, but it, it, it really is around, you know, not being so insular and, and insulated in kind of the building and ideating of, of what you're doing and being so heads down that you're not talking to other people about it. So whether you're trying to get feedback, talking to potential customers, like you really need to validate what it is that you're working on. So you need to get out, you know, uh, sometimes away from your computer and actually talk to people IRL, um, yeah. whether that's, you know, however you can tend to do that, like the, the customer discovery and validation component is super key and it requires work and effort to be able to do that. There is no magic key to figure that out. Um, and sometimes it starts with doing the things that don't scale. Uh, and so in the early stages, I think it's just really kind of getting outside of your own friend group, uh, talking to people that have different perspectives from you and, and really seeing, you know, uh, again, going back to that, that problem is how can you best solve for that problem? Um, and then I would say that the third thing is to really, and kind of related to that is to focus on building relationships. And I think that extends to all aspects of your life. So don't be transactional in nature. Don't just like you know, cold outreach to somebody because you want some very specific thing from them. Um, like build a re- build a relationship with them. Focus on building a relationship with them, even if it's you know somebody who says you know no to the opportunity or not right now. Um, I think that there are things that can evolve from that. You don't always have to come to a relationship with a goal in mind, like you know whether it's funding or um, a partnership or what have you. I think you just kind of have to be open to exploring you know, what your goals are and what are their goals and are there opportunities for us to work together? If not now, like maybe down the road. And I think really investing in those relationships have been some of the, the most fruitful opportunities that I have come across have been because I invested in relationships and, and I wasn't focused on transactional conversations and the nature of it and, and really wanted to just explore where that could go. Amen, sister. You are preaching to the choir. That was, uh, that is uh, awesome advice. And for anybody who now decides that they're not going to apply to one of your programs or they don't have the time for an incubator and accelerator, they can just listen to that like two minute segment in which you basically just dropped. Here's what you need to do to build your business. That's awesome. Um, it's been a pleasure. I, it's always a pleasure whenever we get to catch up anywhere, even if it's randomly passing each other in downtown LA. unexpectedly. <laughs> um, you are someone who, like many people during this pandemic period for me, but for all of us, uh, we we were thrust into like unusual ways that we build relationships, to your point, um, via Twitter and online and all these different things. And you and I at least had like a little IRL anchor in our past. Um, but it's uh, I consider you a friend, even though we have not had the occasion to spend a lot of time together yet. Uh, but I always think it's a yet uh, kind of thing because I'm a huge fan. You're doing important work. You're most importantly just an awesome person, uh, and you're a great example. Um, for the founders and the communities that you so actively are invested in and support. You're literally like a walking the walk, uh, talking the talk human as a woman, as a leader, as a, as a believer in others, as an encourager of others. So it's, I'm grateful that we've had this conversation. Um, I'm grateful that you're still so bullish on LA because I think we're going to do lots of fun stuff over the next 10 years to just create opportunities for people here. Um, and anybody else that wants to come along, they're welcome. But um, thanks for thanks for being with us. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with me today. I appreciate that so much, Rob. And I think like I can say a lot of that same, you know, obviously reflects with you as well. I think you're such an incredibly authentic connector of folks. Um, and, uh, you know, we see it on Twitter. And like you were mentioning earlier, you know, you just want to connect people to the people that are doing stuff here um, or that there are, you know, opportunities that seem to really make sense because you're aligned with values or interests. And you've you've done that in such a way that always comes across and feels one intentional. Um, and that 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 focus on the relationship building aspect of it. So I, I appreciate you and I know that the LA ecosystem does as well. Big hugs. 
Mutual Admiration Society. I love it. Thank you so much. And speaking of Twitter, how can people find you and the program uh, in case they want to apply or they want to follow you or they want to connect with you guys? How can we find you on social media? Yeah. So Grid 110 um, is uh, on all the social channels, YouTube, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and we've got a great newsletter. So if you're interested in figuring out you know, when our next programs are, um, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website. So grid110.org. And then I am at Mixter on all the socials. Feel free to reach out and say hi. Awesome. You're the best. As always, we thank you so much for listening. Today's show was recorded in Los Angeles and Guadalajara, produced by Deanna Bernal in Mexico City, and promoted by the content team at Growth Hacks in <laughs> Tijuana, Mexico. You can always find and share our show via any popular podcasting platform, as well as find us on social media at Mentors Today on Instagram. If you'd like to connect with our hosts, you can find them on Twitter or Instagram at I am Rob Ryan or at Ileana JAF. Gracias, thank you, and we'll see you next time.